Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastic, and I want to show you something really cool. Or rather, I want rare book dealer Rachel Finari of Graph Books to show you something. This is just like an avant-garde art catalog, except that it's not. It's a catalog for cardboard boxes, right? But it's so beautiful. <laughs> it looks like an artist book. It's so gorgeous. I mean, these colors are just extraordinary. I don't know who had the vision at the cardboard box company that ended up with this. It's just so it's just so beautiful. Um, and it's just so funny. Like I, I, it, I just love this. It has pictures of fish in boxes and chickens in boxes and musical instruments in boxes. <laughs> it's like all the glories of modern cardboard boxes. And then my very favorite part is all the demonstration photos of why cardboard is better than wood. So here, here are wood boxes destroyed and cardboard boxes surviving. So, you know, it just tells you so much about a particular moment. I know more about cardboard boxes than I ever knew. Where, pray tell, can one find an avant-garde cardboard box catalog from the middle of the 20th century? Why, at a rare book fair, of course. Last month, I attended the Brooklyn Antiquarian Book Fair to get a taste of what the book trade is all about before sitting down to chat with A.N. Devers, a rare book dealer who's shaken up the collecting world with her new feminist project, The Second Shelf. But before I really started researching this episode, I had no idea what the rare book trade was all about or how it plays such an integral role in shaping the history and the stories we tell about ourselves and what we consider important enough to keep. So, since it was all news to me, I wanted to give you all a taste of what that world is like, too, before we talk about how A. Endeavors and The Second Shelf are trying to change it. We're going to start with Heather Whitney, who was manning The Second Shelf booth at the Brooklyn Fair, and who set me off on a ping-pong journey through half a dozen stalls, with one bookseller introducing me to the next and giving me a tour of their personal collecting philosophy, as well as showing me some cool items from their catalogs. Ready? Let's go. At least for me, when I started as a book collector, there's an idea that you have to be 
some kind of millionaire in order to do this. Uh, and it's intimidating to go to book fairs because, you know, a lot of things are end up being in glass and they're worth a lot of money. And so you think that book collecting is not for you. But really, it's just not true and that there are a lot of books that you can collect and a lot of collections that can be made based off books that are very low priced, um, especially, funnily enough, with women because they are underpriced generally. Uh, and so we bought a collection. I think the cheapest thing we have might be like $10 or something like this. And the most expensive is $22,000. Um, so that's a copy of Sense and Sensibility owned by Jane Austen's best friend. So yesterday we sold, so I'm interested in philosophy and women philosophers as well, and John Stuart Mill, famous utilitarian, during his whole life he said that his, his eventual wife, who he was having an affair with basically beforehand, basically her ideas are the foundation of many of his most famous work. And at the time, and even to this day, most people say that he overinflated her value, that she wasn't that intelligent, and, and basically say that he was just being polite and saying how great she was. What we had uh, was basically the only thing in her lifetime that she published under her own name, and it was uh, called The Enfranchisement of Women. And it was a pamphlet that was, we had a copy that was published in London, and what I think is so great about it is that it shows her views on women and enfranchisement as being radical, and they predated any um, of those views that were eventually shown by Mill uh, that was the subjugation of women. So if, to me, I think it validates her role in his life. So I think that was a very cool one. Uh, my name is Bryn Hoffman, and the uh, bookstore is Pie Wacket Books in Oakland, California. So I deal mostly in occult and esoterica, LGBTQ materials, um, and things pertaining to human sexuality. I got started as a bookseller uh, after working as an archivist, and I had a vested interest in changing the way that things are cataloged and described, uh, making sure that the language that's used in cataloging is equitable um, and trying to find ways of getting books into the hands of people who might not necessarily consider themselves collectors, um, but who do have a vested interest in stewarding history in some way, shape, or form. Everyone can collect books. You don't have to have hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars to spend on books um, if you collect the things that you love. I think that's what's important. That builds a collection, that builds context, that stuff that you put into it. My name is Garrett Scott. Uh, I trade under the name of Garrett Scott Bookseller. I am also known as the bibliophagist, consumer of books or an eater of books. I don't collect so much as I uh, go look for things, try to figure out what there might be missing in telling the story about those things. So you go through a box of paper, 19th century paper. Uh, there's miscellaneous stuff, there's receipts, there's junk, there's letters, there's photos, there's handbills, there's broadsides. What's the one thing in there that's going to open up a new story that hasn't been told already? You put the clues together and you figure out what was going on that tells a story. And it's often in just this little grubby scrap of paper. Just because, you know, after 100 years, people die off and the stories are forgotten. The local scandals get kind of maybe whispered about, but you lose track. And then some letter, some pamphlet, some book shows up. And you're like, what's that all about? And so I like being part of that whole almost crowdsourced process. Let me sort of cast my eye about the booth here. Well, here's a nice thing. And it was printed in Chicago in 1868. And it's a little vest pocket guide of six pages to all of the fire alarms set out around Chicago. So that if you saw a fire break out, you're supposed to go pull on the alarm. And of course, 1868 is three years before 1871 when no one managed to get the alarm in time 
and uh, Chicago basically burned down. Anything printed in Chicago before 1871, because so many of the libraries were burnt down at that point, uh, they're, they're kind of desirable. And I just thought this little intersection of a pretty little bit of job printing from 1868 uh, and the fact that Chicago's fire alarms could have used a little help uh, just sort of spoke to me in a way. So that's another little story that I found amusing. My name is Jason Revito and I trade under Jason Revito Bookseller. I'm doing more and more ephemera. To me it's like evidence, so like I'm hunting for evidence of something that happened that deserves to be preserved. Kind of have this stupid mantra that's like, because the cloud forgets. So it dawned on me that like this stupid concept we have of the cloud, we think that like it's omniscient and that everything you could possibly know is stored somewhere in the cloud. But the fact is, is that like maybe 2% of all books is on Google Books. The cloud is built out of our labor of preserving things and uploading them to the cloud. I do not envy the next generation of, you know, if you want to call me antiquarian booksellers, because we are not producing the same amount of paper as, as we did in the past. There's a lot of talk about emails in the library world in terms of like collecting writers' emails and whatnot and if they have a monetary value. I was kind of happy I sold a USB key at the last show, the 1984 Apple commercial. Do you know when they debuted the Mac? And it was like the dystopian 1984. So this was a Betamax copy from the advertising agency for the, the 60 second and 90 second versions of that ad. So like it was a relic and it was beautiful. I think there will be like kind of creative ways of trying to figure out how to sell digital stuff. Like now, every time somebody dies, that means like a hard drive is also abandoned. And so part of like your estate is a, is a hard drive with stuff on it. And I think the next generation will probably have to figure out means of like, they teach it in like library schools right now, digital preservation, is figuring out how to like forensically go through these uh, hard drives in like efficient manners but like hunting for like gems and unpublished manuscripts and whatnot. I do think that there are, there are definite problems in uh, the trade like there are in many parts of society. Um, one of them definitely being class. Like if, if you have access to capital, it's much easier to make your way through the trade. But it's also a space for like really innovative practices and uh, voices to sort of emerge because it is a process of sort of, if you don't have access to money to buy like first editions or high spots, which is like kind of that market is sort of done at this point. But if you can't do that, then you have to figure out an angle on something that is otherwise like very cheap or, you know, unvalued and you have to figure out a way to add value to it. So I think I'm pretty sure that the next generation will will figure out how to add value to digital stuff and that'll be interesting but I'm pretty glad it's not us that have to figure that out because it's you, you they're gonna have to sit in front of screens for like so much time unless they automate the process but a large part of the current trade is like traveling drinking and you know trading stories and it's just a really interesting subculture uh, of like a bunch of really interesting characters so uh, without the paper excuse uh, for that community to come together, uh, I'm not sure what it'll look like, but yeah, we'll see. I'm Rachel Fenari, and I do business as Graph Books. 
I'm an art historian by training, and I worked in museums and art galleries before I became a bookseller. And so um, the background of a lot of the material that I focus on is visual. And it is not as straightforwardly art historical as I initially expected it to be, but it's a pretty uh, well-covered area. And so I've ended up branching much more into kind of the visual culture of sort of underrepresented groups. Anyway, I ended up doing a lot more women's material than I thought I would, for example. Um, and I'm focusing a lot on Latin America. So I want to tell new stories. Um, I'm focused on material that doesn't already have a place in the canon, and I'd like to create it. This is just a heartbreaking example of stories that don't get told and people who don't have voices. So this is two manuscript documents certifying the chargeability of Native Indian women from the New Bedford Overseers of the Poor. That was a system that they brought from England, um, a government system of taxation whereby a committee was responsible for um, caring for itinerant, impoverished, homeless people in communities. What happened was they had to certify that someone was chargeable to the municipality. So these are essentially certifying that these two native Indian women entered the community, were homeless, and were taken care of by the overseers of the poor and it documents their death as well. And so we don't really have a lot of records of native Indian women at all because in counts done from this period by the English settlers, um, they counted only indigenous men. So when we have records of populations, for the most part, they're like, this is a community of 10 warriors. Um, so women weren't even counted. <laughs> and so the, the, the paper that is left, well, the record we are left with is so small. So even though this is such an, in, in some ways, such an insignificant document, to me it just speaks so poetically to that lack of representation. This is the only record we have. If that made you hungry for old paper and you want to take a break now and run off to your nearest secondhand bookshop, please do. I'll be right here waiting for you to come back. All right. A. Endeavors is a writer and rare book dealer whose business, The Second Shelf, started as a rare book front and soon spiraled into a quarterly catalog meets lifestyle magazine about all the women writers that time forgot. And now she's opening a storefront, too, in London, selling books by women that have gotten second shrift, so to speak. Sold for less money, not sold at all, and relegated to the figurative second shelf. It's a timely venture in the age of Me Too, and one that gets attention every so often in the press. Why great, award-winning, well-reviewed books by women slide out of print, while even the average books of their male peers remain. But rather than just pointing a finger, Devers did something about it, and started collecting and selling things in the rare book world, which, as you've heard from booksellers themselves, is often how research libraries and institutions stock their shelves and thus where scholars and researchers begin their work. Shift the bookshelves, and you just may shift the canon. And judging by the wild success of her Kickstarter campaign, A. Endeavors isn't the only one hungry to balance the shelves. She joins us from London to talk about her ventures. Thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. So my first big question, um, kind of an existential one, is how did you get into book collecting or <laughs> book selling and this whole tripartite website journal store adventure? Sure. That's, a, that's actually a very long question. But 
um, I became a book dealer sort of and skipped the serious collecting bit. I was more of a regular old hoarder of just being happy to have a book I liked in any version. Um, I did, however, meet uh, a neighbor who's a wonderful book dealer named Heather O'Donnell of Honey and Wax in Brooklyn and um, had the fortune of getting to know rare books through her. Um, I was also writing at the same time for a rare books magazine as a literary journalist, um, freelance arts journalist. And so I was getting to know rare books sort of simultaneously as I got to know her uh, because I was reading the magazine when it got delivered to me after my pieces were published in it. So I've just you know, it just sort of converged in Brooklyn and I started going to rare book fairs. I just got really interested really fast. It just seemed like it all kind of came together for me. I mean, the second shelf does have a very feminist, very women focused (laughs) philosophy. And I'm just wondering where that came into the picture. Yeah. So a few, again, it was like a convergence of things. I was getting into rare books because of my friend Heather. And I was at the time I was uh, renting a desk space in a literary magazine that I've been an editor at for many years named A Public Space. And while I was sort of doing all these different freelance projects and they were working on a issue that was pretty much dedicated to forgotten women writers and I was kind of hovering and picked up a book um, that they were focused on by this woman named Betty Howland and they were publishing these letters that have never been published by her. She was a MacArthur genius and her name has been lost for a long time. Um, She just died last year, but had been in a car accident in her later life and so hadn't published in a long time. And she published three books. And I just thought the writing was amazing. And um, the editor of A Public Space, Bridget Hughes, she had pulled her book off of the dollar cart at Housing Works. And Betty Helen brought this idea for her of just what other women writers are out there that aren't getting any notice. And I wrote about it, and at the same time, I bought up her books all really cheaply so I could read them. And and I got really beautiful first editions that were just, like, so unread for very few dollars. And as soon as, like, the issue came out and that piece came out, her her value went up. Her books got snapped up, and so now it's expensive to get one of her books. And at the same time that that happened, I went to one of my first rare book fairs. And this was like three years ago, I guess, only right before I moved to London. And I noticed it was like, I really loved the rare book fair, but it was a lot of men in the room. And it was a lot of male dealers and a lot of male sellers. And I kept picking books off the shelf by women and finding them right next to their sort of contemporary male writers and them being a fraction of the price. So these kind of two things happened at once. And I realized that like, the sexism and misogyny and inequality that I was sort of seeing in literary publishing because of gendered covers and male readership tending to focus on books by men, canonizing male writers, all of the stuff that I had seen sort of happen, you know, in different areas of publishing, I realized was just as true uh, in rare books. And then I sort of, I honestly feel like I had sort of just this moment of complete concentration where I saw something I never understood before, which is that the rare book market has something actually valuable um, uh, to do with a writer's legacy um, instead of the other way around. I, I sort of think most people think of it as, oh, like that manuscript by Leonardo da Vinci is valuable because Leonardo was a great man. Whereas actually the rare book market sus- sort of sources all of this material and describes it and does this sort of like um, preliminary ac- kind of academic, you know, work in a way, research on what something is, and then tries to sell it to their 
collectors or to libraries and institutions. And I I had really only just figured that out in that moment that, well, if all the if it's a primarily a male audience buying and selling these books and those are their preferences, then that's why women books by women are less money. You won't find many women writers, typewriters selling for anywhere near the price of Hemingway's typewriter kind of thing. I was like, I would love to do a business that's a rare books business like my friends and like these rare book fair people do, but make it focused on women and really, really try to help these women writers find a readership and a value that is equivalent to the work that they did. Yeah, I was going to ask what your reception has been in the rare book world, sort of coming in guns blazing and saying, you guys have a woman problem. Have you gotten pushback or yeah, you know, of course. people welcomed you? What's I it mean, been like? I think that every day it changes and it just depends on who it is. But um, I can't really imagine my ears are sometimes burning. Sometimes I know people are talking about me and I know right now, I think, I mean, to be really super candid, I think the rare book world is a little bit like, whoa, she's gotten a lot of publicity. And we are not used to seeing that for rare books. And so, you know, I don't really know. Like, I think some people are like, this is really good. And I think some people are like, not really sure. At my first book fair as the second shelf, a book dealer who is male came up to introduce himself and give me a little bit of hard time for being a newcomer. And I could tell that was what was going on. And he was really friendly. And then I told him what my business was. And he said, that's really sexist. (laughs) And I was Mm. like... Uh-huh. <laughs> Have you, like, welcome to the world of, like, being a woman on the planet? And there was a, about a five-minute intense conversation where he got more and more visibly frustrated, and then actually my neighboring book dealer came over and said, yeah, and it's about time, and, like, kind of cut the conversation off for me, because I just, like, get, I tend to be really super friendly and, like, want everyone, like, I really want to get along with everybody, Um But I think the rare book trade has a lot of history to it that is invisible for women. Like, women don't even know the women in the rare book trade sometimes because, like, they're very cordoned off from one another. There are these famous women rare book dealers. Leona Rostenberg and Madeline Stern, they're really famous, and they wrote books about being rare book dealers together. I hadn't heard of them for, like, two years. No one, like, mentioned them for me for two years. So I think that there's not, like, been a way of giving ourselves a book history of women Um, And, like, it's very much been, like, guided, as in many fields, like, by a male story. And I I think women have not participated in that or had access to that. So um, I definitely get all the time stuff related to that that's not that positive. But I try not to let it bother me, um, although it sometimes does. You've spoken of recent changes that you've noticed in terms of the number of women there or the age of the women there um, at these book fairs. Yeah. I mean, what has that been like? And what has the response been from those women who are now, I guess, just coming up? I mean, I think the issue with the women in the book trade is that a lot of the young women are sort of still hitting glass ceilings fairly early, from what I can tell. And I'm, again, not an expert. um, And I'm very new to the trade. But there's all these rarefied book firms that have been run for, you know, a good hundred years in London and New York, and are just considered like very solid, very big business, rare book firms. I don't think any of them have like a managing director that's a woman that I know of. And none of them are owned by women. Women need to own firms and women need to run firms. And that will be a signifier for more positive change and also bring more people into the trade, like as a customer base. Women are huge readers. We know that and they buy and read more new books. But I think that like a rare book fair can be a bit of an isolating experience. 
um, for many women. And I've seen that firsthand. Like I saw a woman leave a trade a trade show in London in tears because she went to a particular stall and like the person behind the counter wouldn't take her seriously um, and really even look her in the eye. And I've seen that a few times. That was the worst that I'd seen. But I've definitely seen women feel not taken seriously. And I've definitely not been taken seriously by a lot of people, whether they realize it or not. You know, the only thing that can help that is more representation of women and also people of color. And there's like such a lack of diversity. It's a very white male field. And then like the next group of people is white women. And then it's sort of like a sort of just like not diverse after that at all. It becomes a much more interesting field and much more probably valuable in a way to research institutions and libraries when when more diversity and representation is reflected in the books and the stock and more people would come and younger people would come. The Brooklyn Fair had quite a few young people and I think that's partly because of the neighborhood it's in, but I think it's partly because they're trying very hard to make it inviting and accessible to all sorts of people. Yeah, that I mean, I was at the fair and I noticed that a lot of the material there was accessible financially, yeah. which, I mean, I really liked, especially about your booth that you had. You had <laughs> stuff that was like $10. You had stuff that I already owned. And yeah. I was like, great. Okay. I already have a collection. This is wonderful. Yeah. Um, how are booksellers, and you in particular, focusing on making it accessible for people sure. who are young and don't have an inheritance? Well, I mean, I don't think all booksellers do, <laughs> but um, for me... I'm saying that more women need to collect books by women or more books by women need to be collected and books by women are traditionally undervalued. So I have to price aggressively for books by women, but you have to also give an access point that feels doable and explain why perhaps it might not be just sort of like a precious or nostalgic pursuit. I think that the reason the fairs are older is because it has become a little bit too tightly defined a field of like what it is to be a collector and you know there's just a lot more younger people trying to enter the trade and shake that up and one of the things that i noticed at the fair was there was a lot of ephemera yeah um so just a lot of paper yeah. that was to do with like invitations. Yeah. And it seems like there are a lot of ways to focus on women's ephemera. There are. And I actually have quite a bit of ephemera. And I think that what's so great about women's ephemera is that it was ignored for so long and not taken very seriously. So the things that ended up in libraries and archives were more like related to things that would end up in history books related to the lives and biographies of famous men who made history. And like women's ephemera was really truly always considered personal and private. And so what you get when you find this stuff is you get hugely rich communicative pieces of history, like legitimate history that haven't really been um, collected or researched or, you know, studied in any thorough way or made the history books. And, and that can be really incredibly moving. And what's nice about it for collectors is that, like, you can sometimes find that and take it home and be a steward of something like that, you know, and it's one of a kind. It's sort of like an antique. There's only one of those probably available. You know, you can do all sorts of things. Maybe you love a certain writer from the 1940s, and, like, most of that writer's stories are about a certain kind of domestic life in the 1940s. And then you might start collecting 
things and aspects of other, you know, women's lives about that era. You can really go in so many different directions with collecting. You know, with women's collecting, there's actually a lot of work to be done that's actually pretty low-hanging fruit. You could probably pick a couple writers on a pretty small budget, make a pretty serious collection of signed first editions and find their letters and get it all over time fairly affordably, and then you have something that actually, like, no one has assembled before. And that is really important, because if it ends up in a library or ends up donated somewhere, you know, then that university takes care of it. And then maybe, like, a professor sees it and wants to do a syllabus about that that writer, and then maybe someone wants to bring those books back into print. It's a very small amount of it, but it all feeds on sort of giving this woman space on the bookshelves. Yeah, I mean, one thing I really liked about your talk at the at the Brooklyn Book Fair, which really resonated with me as a, a lover of neglected classics, is that we can only discover and rediscover Barbara Pym so many times. Yeah, I mean, Muriel Spark, even, who's famous and canonized to some degree, gets rediscovered and rediscovered. Like, what is the issue with the literary canon that men get cemented on a far more regular and firm basis? And I think women who are older and have, like, published tons of books in their life and always to good reviews and stuff, I've noticed just, like, living writers have trouble, you know, getting any amount of attention about how important they are. Women have trouble in their older age even selling their archives at all to universities and often donate them. It's kind of a a big, dirty secret in archives is that women's archives don't sell for money or, or for very little, and, like, men sell, sell, sell for tons of money archives should be sort of transparent about the inequality of what's happening between men and women. Right, right. All the more reason to encourage more book collecting of of women writers and their ephemera to sort of skew the canon. I think that's the other thing is that I think it's not really archive. I'm I'm talking about them like they've done something really wrong, but I don't really think they have. I just think that like everybody's got to help, you know, like if we love women writers and think they're equal, we have to treat them equal and we don't in a lot of ways. So whatever we can do to help build their legacies and market and value and make a case for why they're valuable, like that helps the art that steers like everything. So we have to keep knocking down the doors and requesting that literary criticism magazines and quarterlies and weeklies publish women critics, publish as many reviews of books by women. You know, it all begins at the beginning, but there's all sorts of things people can do. And, like, the collecting stuff is just really exciting. Like, there's no better job than, like, trying to find a home for something that's really, really great by a woman. I have an unpublished novel that's completely handwritten in beautiful calligraphy by a woman named Ida Bogue. It's like a young adult adventure novel that she wrote for her nephews. But the thing about it is she hand-bound it. She hand, like, made the whole thing, and she did 45 watercolors. And it's called The Loiterers, and it's, like, very local to the area in England that it's written. And I think it's tremendous because the labor and love that she put into it for it to only live in that one copy is just incredible and also speaks to sort of the way women, like, would make incredible things and then just keep them to the family and never have a life beyond that despite maybe deserving something else. Or maybe if they had had access to more opportunity or funding, they could have become, you know, the next Beatrix Potter or something had they been more lucky or had like a different station or position in their life. For more on Anne Devers' work with The Second Shelf and links to all of the books by the neglected women writers mentioned in the interview, check out our episode page. 
We've also got a link to a series of interviews with rare book dealers that the Antiquarian Booksellers Association of America has put online, so you can see how the trade has changed in other ways over the generations. And finally, we'll be back early next week on Halloween with our last Spooky Pants installment of the season on how blood-sucking vampires are really just creatures of the Enlightenment. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.